so I have, to, I have a question for you that you don't have to answer out loud. As a matter of fact, I'd prefer you don't answer it out loud, but think of the answer in your head. Here's the question. Have you ever lied to a pastor? Um, and I mean, like, not me, like your last pastor. Have you ever lied to a pastor and have you blamed it on God? Because I did that. In April 2008, I was at Liberty University. I'd taken one of the students in my youth group to go visit the campus. It's where I'd gone to college. But I really went to Liberty to find a job. I'd been in ministry about 10 years. Uh, and I, I knew in my head... Um, I thought the things that my heart was really passionate about, the type of church that I wanted to be involved in um, and work in. So I went to Liberty really to meet with some of my pastors and professors there to say, hey, I need you all to help me find a job. You're connected to thousands of churches across America, um, so can you help me find a job? So we were sitting in chapel service before I would have a meeting with one of my pastors and professors after that chapel service. And, he, and, and the speaker got to the end of the chapel service, um, and he asked this question. He said, what would you attempt for God? If you knew that it could not fail. So I want you to think about that. It was the last chapel of the year. And then they were going to go for the summer. And he asked the students to leave thinking on this question over the summer. What would you attempt for God if you knew that it could not fail? Sitting my, in my seat in the back of the Vine Center, which was a 12,000 seat basketball auditorium, listening to that question. I had gone to Liberty with a picture in my head of the church that I wanted to work at. And when he asked that question, what would you attempt for God if you knew that it could not fail? Literally, it was as if the Holy Spirit inside of me said, I, like, I would start the church that's in my head. Like, if I knew that it couldn't fail, I would start the church inside my head instead of trying to find the church inside my head to work out. And as quickly as I thought that, I kind of shut it down. An hour later, I find myself sitting in this pastor's office, um, and he said, Christian, how can I help you? And I described everything to him of what God had been laying on my heart about this church, and I said, I need you to help me find this church. I know you guys are connected to a church like this. I need you to find a church like this without a pastor, because I think God wants me to go pastor a church like this. And he said, have, well, have you ever considered that maybe God wants you to start a church like this? And I did that nervous laughter, you know, that you do, like when you know somebody's like on to you, it's like, he's <laughs> um, like, no, no, I, you know, no, I know God's not calling me to do that. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, God has never one time even spoke to me about starting a church. And then I just looked for the lightning because it was like a less than an hour after God said, you should start a church like that. It wouldn't be the first time or last time that I made a statement or a decision based in fear. But it's like the time that I remember the most because I would head into the 18 darkest months of my life not leaning into what I knew God was calling me to do because I was afraid. Um, I really wasn't running from God. I just wasn't running to him. Like I was stuck in fear. And I can't tell you how many Christians that I meet and counsel with and talk to who are in that exact position. They're not running from God. They love God. They want to be close to God. But they're not running to what God has called them to either because they're afraid. They are paralyzed and they are stuck in fear. Listen, I know the feeling. I was just comfortable enough to not want to have to make a change, but just miserable enough to know that I couldn't stay the exact same. And I had to weigh, am I going to have courage or am I going to have comfort? And it's interesting. You can have courage or you can have comfort. You just can't have both of them at the same time. And God was saying, Christian, you're going to have to press your faith muscles here if you're going to follow me into what I'm calling you to do. Let me ask you a question. Do you want more blessings in your life? Because I believe often blessings live right on the other side of the line of fear that we have to step over. Do you want miracles in your life? I mean, who doesn't need a miracle in their life? I believe all of us live just on the other side of fear 
from a miracle that God wants to do in our life. You know, I look at the 18 months that I lived in darkness and I, and I struggle with the missed opportunities because when I finally raced in faith to what God called me to do, it was like the blessings and miracles of heaven began to open up just one after another. But I couldn't receive them until I decided to live in faith over fear. For the next five weeks at our church, we're going to focus on that phrase, faith over fear, in this series that we're calling Fearless. And we're going to study for our inspiration. I don't know that I can teach you how to live in faith over fear, but I can show you someone who did it and hope that his life and the principles that we learn from his life will inspire you a little bit. So we're going to be in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Daniel or fire up your Journey Church International app so you can follow along. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. Because we find in Daniel one of the most courageous people who ever lived. As you flip to Daniel chapter 1 in your Bible, I want to repeat that phrase, and I want to ask you a question about it. We find in Daniel one of the most courageous people that ever lived. Now let's stop and ask that question about ourselves. Would anyone in the world describe you as one of the most courageous people that they've ever met? Like if you were to die today, this week in your obituary, would the word courage be in it? This week, near the end of this week at your funeral, would the word courage be mentioned to describe your life and how people see you? Or we can put these two words together. Would courageous faith be mentioned? Do people look at your life and see the way you live your life as having the foundation of courageous faith? And maybe they've never seen a miracle done in their life personally, but they know what miracles are because they have watched you in courageous faith, the lean into God, and they've seen God move in ways in your life that they've never seen in their own. Daniel was a man of courageous faith. And to know about Daniel, you have to know a little bit about Israel. So let me give you the quick background of the nation of Israel, because before the nation of Israel became the nation of Israel, they were a group of slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Then Moses came along, and we have the Exodus that most people are a little bit familiar with. And then after the Exodus, for around 400 years, Israel was a collection of nation states. They were known as the 12 tribes. That makes sense to us in American history as like the 13 colonies. Kind of, you know, 12 tribes that were the same, but they weren't under one rule. They were kind of a collection of nation states. In 1050, they asked for a king, and God gave him one. His name was King Saul. He ruled for 40 years. Then David ruled for 40 years. Then his son Solomon ruled for 40 years. So for 120 years, we have in ancient history the kingdom of Israel, where these 12 tribes were combined. After Solomon died, his son took over. He was a bum as a leader, so there was a civil war in the country. Israel and Judah divided from 930 to about 586. We see kind of civil war Israel. Uh, the northern section of the country was called Israel. The southern section of the country was called Judah. Uh, Israel, the northern section, was conquered by Assyria in 722. Uh, the countries, the cities, was destroyed. Uh, the people were either killed or they were exiled. And then the exact same thing happened to Judah, the southern part of the nation. Over the course of 19 years, from 605 to 586, we see three attacks on Jerusalem until they finally tear down the walls, burn the temple, um, and kill and deport everyone in the city. We enter the story of Daniel in 605. So Daniel is aware of the history of Israel. Daniel is caught up in the first raid of Babylon on Jerusalem. And here's what we find happens in 605 BC in the life of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. We'll read through verse 7, but we'll read all of chapter 1 in the course of today's message. So keep your Bible open on your lap. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, came, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. That's modern-day Baghdad, by the way, if you can picture that on a map. And put it in the treasure of the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family that he just conquered and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the chief official, gave the new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You know, if we're going to learn in the next five weeks to live with faith over fear, we've got to identify fear. Like we have to identify not just fears, but the foundation of fear, where it comes from and why it's in our life and how it holds us back spiritually. And I don't know if you saw it, but we see in those seven verses that we just read, number one on your outline, we see the strategy of the enemy. Where does fear come from? What is the foundation? What is the underlying foundation of fear? If we're going to get over fears, plural, we've got to understand where fear that holds us back comes from. And we can see that in Daniel chapter 1. We see the strategy of the enemy. And what is the strategy of the enemy? Well, here's what I want you to know first so you don't think it's just Daniel's enemy. We can learn the strategy of our spiritual enemy by studying the strategy of Daniel's enemy. You say, wait a minute, are you saying that I have a spiritual enemy? If you are a Christian, you have a spiritual enemy. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. You're always welcome here. We'd love to answer your questions and help you learn more about Christianity. But if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual enemy. So he says who? Jesus' best friend Peter recorded it for us in a letter that we have in the Bible called 1 Peter. And here's what he says to Christians. You need to be aware of this today. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, you have an enemy, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion and he's looking for someone to devour. If you are a Christian, you have an enemy and his goal is to devour you. Say he wants to eat me. No, his, his goal is to eat you alive from the inside out. You say, well, how's my enemy going to devour me? I'm glad you asked. Because your enemy's goal is to make you afraid. Your enemy's goal is to get you to live in fear so you don't live at all. And I'm not talking about like a haunted house fear. The the enemy's goal is not to startle you. The enemy's goal is not to spook you. The enemy's goal is not to sneak up behind you and get you to jump. I'm not talking about like afraid in that sense. When Peter says the enemy wants to devour you, in 1 Peter 5, 7, he actually tells us what that means. He said, here's how the enemy wants to devour your life. 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, here's the only way to defeat the enemy. You have to cast your anxiety on God because he cares for you. You see, the enemy's goal is to make you afraid. And when I say afraid, I mean emotional fear. I mean mental fear. I mean anxiety. I mean worry. 
I mean the things that keep you awake at night, the things that keep you distracted during the day, the things that keep you from acting on what your spirit is telling you to do, the things that keep you from stepping into hard things or out of wrong things. The enemy just wants to give you enough anxiety that you pause and you stay there. So what are you anxious about today? What anxiety have you been carrying, carrying this week? What has caused you to be stuck? And the only answer for unstuck is faith. You're not sure how it'll work. You just know God's answer is this, but you don't know how it'll turn out, but you can't move because of anxiety. Christian, you sure God's not calling you to plant a church? <laughs> he would never call me to do that because that scares me to death. You know, sometimes God calls us to do things that scare us to death so that he can reveal his power in our life. Listen, if anybody should have been filled with anxiety, it should have been Daniel. And when we look at Babylon, we see seven things that Babylon did to basically brainwash the people who would come into their service. What did they did? Verse, what did they do? Verse one, they would destroy your nation. It says the king of Babylon came, he attacked the nation and he destroyed the nation. That, that would, that would kind of bring some anxiety. That would shake your identity. Secondly, they would kill your family. We know that they took the sons of nobility back. The only way they could do that is if they would have killed their parents and their grandparents. So they would kill the older folks. They would bring the younger folks back. So not only has Daniel lost his nation, now he's lost his family. Let's just stop there. What would that do to you? If we get to January 1, 2018, and we are now ruled by a conquering nation, and everyone, your, your, your parents and grandparents, every generation above you, they're dead. What does that do for your identity? What's that do for your faith? Then number three, they take away your freedom. I'm sure most of the kids would say, my country's gone, my family's gone, kill me too. They said, no, 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 it'd be much better for you to be a slave in this brainwashing thing that they would do to change their identity. And not only would they kill their family, but they killed their future family. Say, so, wait a minute, Christian, now you're stretching the truth because that wasn't in there. It actually was. It just wasn't in, it wasn't real clear in our English Bible. In verse 3, when it says the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, that word officials is not the word officials that was written by Daniel. It was the word eunuchs. So what was the chief of the eunuchs? The chief of the eunuchs worked with all the men who would have close access to the king and his court and his harem. You say, what's a eunuch? That's a weird word. It was somebody who'd been castrated and could not have a family. Daniel and his friends were sent to work with this guy and close enough access to the king that everyone who worked for this guy would be castrated because the king wanted them to be able to be around his family and his harem without any worry of sexual impropriety. Read the book. You ever read of Daniel's wife, kids, family? In a moment, his future family was gone. Then they, according to verse 4, would try to change your language. So you no longer spoke the language of your past, but you would speak a new language in a new place. Number six, they would try to get you to adopt a new culture, new food, new education, even new beliefs within that education. And then finally and lastly, they would change your name. It was as if they were trying to remove who you were off the map of history and saying, no, you are now this person. You see, when we lose our identity, we lose everything. Phrased another way, when we lose our security, when we lose the thing that makes us us, when we lose the thing that gives us confidence in our life, we lose everything. Daniel was at a place where he had nothing he could hang on to. All of it was gone. 
Daniel was at a place where he had nothing he could look back to. All of it was gone. Daniel was in a place where he had nothing he could look forward to. All of it had been taken from him. And he was at, his, at a place where he had, if he had his identity in anything other than God, his identity would have been radically changed forever. Let me ask you a few questions this morning. Do you feel like you're at a place today, August 27, 2017, where there's nothing you can hang on to that's secure in life? Just everything you grasp at seems to let you down. Do you feel like you're at a place where nothing you look back to kind of gives you joy that, that you came through it? Nothing you look back to gives you confidence. Nothing you look forward to gives you hope. If that's you, you find yourself in the place of Daniel and you find yourself right where the enemy wants you to be. Because see, the strategy of the enemy is to get you to place your identity in your security, something other than God, because if he can do that, then he can take it. If he can get you to place your security in anything but God, he can then take your security, your country, your family, your freedom, your future family, your name, your good name, your reputation, your job, your language, your culture. If you place your security in anything but God, your security can be taken. So this week, our small groups ministry starts again. Our podcast starts again, which is just kind of a behind-the-scenes look at our message where I try to answer questions about the message. And one of the questions, if you're in small groups, that we'll ask you to answer starting today is this. When blank is going well in your life, it makes you feel secure. How would you fill in that blank? When blank is going well in my life, I feel totally secure. Like when blank goes well, I sleep like a baby. When blank goes well, I'm totally content. When blank goes well, I absolutely have no worries in life. If anything but God is in that blank, then Satan can steal it from you and he wants to. If the answer to that question is anything other than God, your security and your identity can be changed. But not so with Daniel. Let's look, number two, at the security of Daniel. Because Daniel had a faith that was deeper than anything that could be taken from him. We get to verse 8. And it says, after everything that happened, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and he gave them vegetables instead. This really is my only problem with the whole book of Daniel. If he would have been my friends, I would have said, listen, let's, I get vegetables, right? But let's do some steak. Let's do a little seafood in there. It's like not just water and vegetable. Other than that, I love Daniel and what he's doing. Listen, Daniel had everything taken from him except his God. Daniel had everything taken from him except his God. And when he had nothing but God, he relied on his God. 
One of my best friends in ministry is a guy named Clayton King. He preaches at our church about once a year. We're trying to figure out when to have him in again. A few years ago, he wrote a book called Stronger. And this book came out of the most difficult 18 months of his life. In 18 months, he lost nine friends and family members, all of them who he preached their funerals. The ninth person to die in the span of 18 months was his dad. And he said as he sat with his, in a room with his, his dad, his dad had just passed away. It was just him and his father's body in a hospice room. His family was outside. He said, I remember falling to my knees and thinking, God, you have taken everything from me now. You've taken everything from me now. And he said, in that moment, I had such peace and comfort wash over me. Like in that moment, God made it very clear that he was in that room with me. And he writes in the book, sometimes you don't realize God is all you need until you realize God is all you have. Like sometimes you don't even realize God is all you need until God is all you have. And then you think, God, you've taken everything from me. And God whispers in your heart, but I'm right here. And you think, okay, it's going to be okay. So what gives you security? When blank is going well, I feel secure. What is that answer for you? Because that is the target of the devil in your life. When blank is going well, I feel feel secure. Not only is that the target of the enemy, but listen, the answer to that question is usually the object of your greatest anxiety. Because you know, if this goes well, I feel secure. But if this doesn't go well, I can't sleep at night. If this doesn't go well, I'm vulnerable. If this doesn't go well, I'm exposed. If I don't have this, what will they say about me? So the answer to that question, if it's not God, is also the object of your greatest anxiety. And it's the potential for your greatest fear. Say, how can I know what the foundation of my fear is? Well, the easiest way to identify your greatest fear is to identify your greatest confidence. And if it's not God, whatever that thing is, there lies the foundation of all the fear that you'll face when blank goes well. When my family is strong, I feel secure. Me too. That's actually one that I would put in the blank. When my family is strong, I feel secure. Good. What happens when that's not the case? Is my faith lost? When my finances are strong, that's another one in my blank. When my finances are strong, when my emergency fund is full, when I don't have any credit card debt, then I sleep well at night. All of that can be taken away from me in one day. When my job security is good, when things are going well at work. But what happens when you show up on Monday and you realize your boss has been fired and the person you despise the most who doesn't care for you is now the person you report to? Your security can be taken in a moment. You say, when my kids are doing well, when my kids love God and do well in school, okay, what happens when they don't? You say, when my marriage is good, I feel secure. Okay, well, what about when it's not? You say, my house in my neighborhood gives me comfort. When I'm there, I feel strong. What about all the houses and neighborhoods from Corpus Christi to Houston that are gone? They're gone. This day, last week, they were there. Now they're gone because they're going to have about 30 to 40 inches of rain and the whole city's underwater. There are apartments on homes that this time last week people lived in that now are abandoned forever and people are living in a homeless shelter. If my security is my home, what happens when it goes? You say, well, I'm really good at what I do. And as long as I can do this at a high level, I feel secure because I can make a living for myself. Okay, what happens when that's gone? Last night, there was a boxing match you may have heard of. Colin McGregor, Irishman, a crazy Irishman against 
uh, Floyd, Money Mayweather, who's a crazy American. Um, they fought each other last night in Las Vegas. It was kind of the MMA UFC world against boxing, and McGregor, you know, finally, or, or Mer- Mayweather finally beat him after 10 rounds, kind of wore him down. Um, a lot of you paid money that you probably shouldn't have to watch that fight. I didn't, but thank you to those of you who did and allowed my son to come watch it at your house because he was mad at me for not doing it. But as I thought about this MMA UFC world, you know, a year ago, the star of MMA UFC was not Colin McGregor. It was actually a woman. Her name was Ronda Rousey. And man, she was the toughest female on planet Earth until she wasn't. I mean, she would beat people in less than 20 seconds. She would, like, she would break their bones. She would knock them out. Like, like she was a must-see TV because of what she would do to people until she stepped in the ring with a gal named Holly Holm who, who just knocked her out, just beat her up. After she lost that fight for nearly six months, You never even saw Ronda Rousey walk out of her house. And a year after the fight, she gave an interview on television, and they said, tell us what went through your head the first month, six weeks, 90 days after that fight. And she said, every day I wanted to wake up, and I wanted to kill myself. Because who I was was the toughest female on planet Earth, and when I was no longer that, I was nobody. That was her fill in the blank. When I was that, I was everything. But when that got taken away, I was, I was nobody. So where is your security? What are you trusting in that will ultimately let you down? Psalm 27 poses that question this way. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some trust in finances or ability. Some trust in their job. Some trust in their country. All those things can be taken away from you. So we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. What are you placing your trust in? Because the foundation of your fear usually begins with misplaced security in something that's not secure. So Daniel placed his security in God. And here's what we find out. Daniel placed his security in God in a place where God wasn't even acknowledged, but God was already working to help Daniel accomplish the impossible. Like it's an impossible request. You've conquered my nation. You've killed my family. You've taken my freedom. You've taken my future family. You've changed my culture. You've changed my language. You've changed my name. But I'm going to ask you if I can live the way that I want to. That doesn't even make sense. But Daniel found a security in God. And Daniel said, I'm not really sure how this is going to work. But I'm going to press forward in faith over fear. And what happened in verse 9? Daniel could not have known this unless he would have stepped out in faith. But it said God had already caused the official who was watching him to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Daniel could not have known that God was at work until he stepped into the twilight zone of faith. But when he stepped across, the miracles begin to happen. The blessings begin to happen. It was a faith over fear moment. You realize you cannot have faith without fear. If it doesn't cause fear, it doesn't demand faith. But when you're willing to step over fear into faith, you see things God's already been doing that you couldn't see until you got there. But once you got there, you thought, man, I wish I would have trusted God before. He's been working all along. And we see thirdly, when we do that, we see this spiritual result of having faith over fear. And it's awesome how it's phrased in our Bible. What happens when we have faith over fear? Look at verses 17 through 21 as we finish Daniel chapter 1. It says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service three years the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar 
The king talked with him and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the time, until the first year of King Cyrus. Listen, according to Daniel chapter 1, living with faith over fear makes things ten times better. Hey, you want a life that's 10 times better? Learn to live with faith over fear. Learn to step into the miraculous. I don't know if you recognize this number 10 throughout chapter 1 here. 10 days of testing. 10 times better. What is the biblical number 10? It's the number of completion. It's the thought that if you want your faith to be completed, if you want to see the end result of faith, the miraculous and the blessings, you've got to step into faith and you've got to step out of fear. You say, Christian, come on, does life really get 10 times better? For Daniel, it did. And I got to be honest, as I look back through my life, I looked at this phrase 10 times better and I thought, man, I think that's true. When I finally stepped out to start a church, I think my life got 10 times better. When I confronted conflict at work that I'd been avoiding or in friendships that I'd been putting off, it actually made things 10 times better. When, when, when Danielle and I finally, after a decade of being married, broke down and went to a marriage counselor because we're like, man, marriage is way harder than we thought it was going to be. It actually made our marriage 10 times better. When I finally got on a budget so I could get out of credit card debt and start tithing a full 10%, it actually made things 10 times better. That friend and neighbor who I'd always wanted to invite to church but always been afraid to, when I finally asked them and they came and got engaged, it was like, I actually feel 10 times better. When you go back to school for the new career you want, when you finally finish, I think you'll feel 10 times better. When you embark on a new career after that first 36 months of maybe giving birth to a new thing, you're going to look and say, this is 10 times better. When you finally take the time and invest the money to go on a mission trip that you couldn't afford time or money to go on, you get back from the mission trip and think, that was 10 times better than I thought it was going to be. When you apologize to someone you've been avoiding, you feel 10 times better. When you forgive someone who has hurt you and you have a relationship with me, you feel 10 times better. Yes, I actually think faith over fear makes things 10 times better, but you'll never live in faith if you allow fear to have more access to your heart than God. So what lives in your heart in close proximity, fear or faith? Did y'all watch the eclipse this week? It was awesome unless you drove to St. Joe and then I heard it wasn't. And if you did, I'm really sorry. I heard if you went south, it was great. I watched it from um, my back deck because I had to work and it was, it was fascinating. Um, there's a picture of Danielle. This, she took like 40 selfies because she couldn't see anywhere through the phone. So it's like we just had to guess through these eclipse glasses where we were. I made sure to protect my dog Rudy so he wouldn't go blind. So there he is watching the eclipse on our, on our back porch. Um, it was awesome. But as I watch the eclipse, like I'm, I'm kind of a nerd. So when I watch things, like I, get, I just have a hundred questions logistically about how things work. So as I watch that moon come and cover up the sun, I was like, you know, how, like how does that happen? And how are they, you know, such the same shape and such the same size? So I had to go do some homework, do some research on the eclipse. And what I found out about the eclipse was fascinating for me and how my mind works. Do you know the sun is actually not anywhere near the size of the moon? Do you know the sun is 400 times larger than the moon? Do you all know that? To, to, to illustrate that, if the moon were that size, or the sun, if the sun was that size, if that was the real size of the moon or sun, the moon would be this big. 
It's a popcorn kernel. You can probably barely see it. I think they're going to try to zoom in on it. They told me to hold my hand very, very still. <laughs> so I want you to think about that. Think about that as you look back to the eclipse that you watched. If the sun is that big, the moon is this big. Say, how in the world could something so small cover up something so big? Well, the moon is 400 times closer to earth than the sun. 400 times greater, 400 times closer. That's why they appear the exact same size in the sky. But the only way something so small can cover up something so big is if this one gets to be a lot closer. And when you look at the problems in your life that are keep you, keeping you from seeing a God that's 400 times bigger, what you're saying is, I've let this problem so close to my heart. I've let this fear so close to my heart while keeping God at such a distance that my fear appears to be the same size or maybe even bigger than my God. You know, as we, as a church, as we lean into Daniel the next five weeks, we're going to learn that Daniel leaned into God. You cannot have faith over fear unless you keep God closer than fear. Listen, the only way a big God can be overshadowed by a small problem is to allow the problem to live closer to your heart than God. And you know what I know about fear? We think about them every day. So we got to learn to think about God more. You know what I think about fear? We wake up and we give it an audience. What if we begin to wake up and give God an audience in the word? You know, the thing I know about fear is we ponder it over and over in our head. What if we begin to pray over and over in our head and talk to God? You know what I know about fear? We think about all the things that could go wrong. What if we begin to live in faith and think about all the things that could go right? See, the only way a small problem makes God seem distant and silent as if you've pushed him a long way off. You see, to live in faith over fear, you got to stay close to God. Not just for a little bit, but for a lifetime. I don't know if you noticed the dates of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 starts in 605 B.C. Daniel 121 actually closes in 539 B.C. We have the exact dates from secular history, which means Daniel lived in Babylon 66 years. From the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon till the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. Daniel lived in Babylon 66 years. You say, why is that important to know? That's a weird fact to throw in at the end of this message. Here's why it's important to know. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who say this. When I get out of this situation, I'm going to get back with God. Listen, when I, when I can get out of this situation, I'm going to get back in small group, start serving, I'm going to start giving. Like when I can just get out of this situation, if God will get me out of this situation, I'll be all in spiritually again. Listen, what if God doesn't want to get you out of your situation? What if God wants to use your situation to make you dependent on him and only him? Say, so, well, if God, no, 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 not if God will get me out. What if God wants to keep you there so that there you'll learn to pray because that's the only place you'll learn to pray? What if God wants to keep you there because that's the only place you'll learn to let go of everything but him? What if God wants to keep you there because that's the only place you'll look up to him and say, what am I supposed to do? Daniel, in his faith, didn't get to go home after three years. God said, you're going to stay right there. And through this faith, you're going to experience me and a whole lot of other people are going to be inspired. It would be this faith that would allow Daniel to step into the lion's den. All of us want to step out of the lion's den. Not a whole lot of us are willing to step in it. But Daniel did. Faith over fear. See, I believe if we can learn to live with faith, over fear it will bring miracles in our life 
And I believe it will motivate the lives of others who see courageous faith to lean into a God who can be trusted. But if Christians don't trust God, who will? Like if Christians can't see God because of the little problems, who can? Right, we got to remove the little problem. We got to embrace the big God. We got to learn to live with faith over our fear. So every week we'll close with what I call a faith over fear moment. Something I don't want you to think about for the next month. What would you attempt for the glory of God if you were guaranteed it wouldn't fail? Is it possible that God's calling you to something that you would absolutely do if you weren't afraid? Is it possible that God's already planted his miracle inside you and told you to chase after it if you could overcome your fear? I want you to think about that, not just today, but all month long. I want you to ask yourself that question. What would I do for God if I was guaranteed that it would not and could not fail? And I don't want to challenge you in faith to pursue that. You bow your heads and close in prayer with me.